All right, the Bible reading this morning is from the book of Mark. So this morning we're going to be reading from the start of chapter 2 through to the start of chapter 3. You can find it on page 813 if you're following along in the Red Bibles. So starting at the first verse of chapter 2. When he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. So many gathered around that there was no longer room for them, not even in front of the door, and he was speaking the word to them. Then some people came, bringing to him a paralysed man, carried by four of them. And when they could not bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and after having dug through it, they let down the mat on which the paralytic lay. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this fellow speak in this way? It is blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? At once Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were discussing these questions among themselves. And he said to them, Why do you raise such questions in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Stand up and take your mat and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, stand up, take your mat and go to your home. And he stood up and immediately took the mat and went out before all of them, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Jesus went out again beside the sea. The whole crowd gathered round him, and he taught them. As he was walking along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. And as he sat at dinner in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were sitting, also sitting with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard this, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, The wedding guests cannot fast while the bridegroom is with them, can they? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast on that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old cloak, Otherwise, the patch pulls away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost, and so are the skins. But one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need of food? He entered the house of God 
when Abiathar was high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and he gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for humankind and not humankind for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there who had a withered hand. They watched him to see whether he would cure him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man who had the withered hand, Come forward. And then he said to them, Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. He looked around at them with anger. He was grieved at their hardness of heart and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately conspired with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. This is the word of the Lord. One of the presents I received at Christmas, which might seem a long time ago now, but it was only a month ago and we've still got our Christmas tree. One of the presents I received was Yotamata Ottolenghi's recipe book, Plenty More. As it happened, I already had a copy, but there was an exchange slip, so I exchanged it for his latest book, which is called Simple. If you're familiar with Yotamata Ottolenghi's recipes you'll know they are generally very complex. A long list of ingredients, some of which are exotic and hard to obtain, and a long list of instructions involving multiple complex methods. So his latest book, Simple, is an attempt to show that food doesn't have to have a lot of ingredients or be difficult to prepare in order to be interesting and delicious. Actually, if you think about it, this is obvious. Dishes like cheese fondue or chocolate mousse have only two or three ingredients, but they're far from bland or boring. So what has this got to do with our reading this morning from Mark's Gospel? Many scholars have described the Gospel of Mark as simple or even naive. It's the shortest of the Gospels. Its vocabulary and sentences are simple. Its grammar has been described as unrefined. But just as simple foods like chocolate mousse or cheese fondue can be full of flavour, this apparently simple gospel is full of meaning. Today's passage on the surface looks like a series of stories and events only loosely connected. Two of these stories are about Jesus healing people. One is the calling of the disciple Levi. And there are three stories about people questioning and criticising Jesus. And then there's Jesus' somewhat cryptic answers. Far from being a tasty dish, we might think this passage is more like a dog's breakfast. But if we examine the text carefully, we'll see that, in fact, it has quite a sophisticated structure. And understanding this structure will help us to understand what Mark is trying to communicate the key idea that ties all these stories together. The structure that Mark uses in this passage is called a chiasm, and it was commonly used in ancient literature, poetry and speeches, including classical Greek literature, 
the Hebrew Old Testament and the Greek New Testament. A chiasm is where words or concepts are repeated in reverse order. Now that might sound a bit technical, but I think we'll get it if we look at some simple examples. Winners never quit because quitters never win. You can see the structure A, B, B, A. And when the going gets tough, the tough get going. And here are two simple examples from the Bible. From the Old Testament, whoever sheds the blood of a human, by a human shall that person's blood be shed. And from the New Testament, but many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. You get the, that structure. Now, this device is not just a feature of ancient literature. Good speechmakers still use chiasms. So here are two examples from the present day, from Hillary Clinton. In the end, the true test is not the speeches the president delivers, it's whether the president delivers on the speeches. And from Barack Obama, my job is not to represent Washington to you, but to represent you to Washington. These are the simplest form of chiasm. Chiasms can be much longer with multiple stories rather than just words or sentences. So we can have stories A, B, C and D, followed by a central idea E, then the corresponding stories D, C, B and A in that order. And you can see from this diagram why it's called a chiasm after the Greek letter chi, which looks like a capital X. The important thing is that the stories mirror each other round the central point, and this central point is the key to the whole passage. Now this is how our passage this morning looks when we recognise it as a chiasm. Jesus heals a paralysed man. B, why does he eat with sinners? See, new cloth, new wineskins. That's the central idea. B, why are they doing what it is not lawful on the Sabbath? And A, Jesus heals a man with a paralysed hand. So let's look first at the two stories of healing, which come up front and then at the end of our passage. In both events, Jesus heals a man. In both cases, Jewish religious authorities have come to observe what Jesus says and does. The news of his activities, his healing of many people, his driving out of a demon, has reached them. And they've come from Jerusalem all the way up to Galilee to check him out. And in both cases, Jesus' words and actions enrage them. So much so that after this second healing, they went out and began to plot how they might kill him. As they say, well, that escalated quickly. Their reaction to Jesus is the complete opposite of that of the ordinary people, who we're told were amazed and praised God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. So what was it about Jesus and what was it about the religious authorities that caused them to be so hostile? First, Jesus' healing of the paralysed man. 
a favourite Sunday school story, the four friends of the man who was so desperate to see Jesus, presumably hoping that he would heal him, making a hole in the roof and lowering him down amongst the crowd. A dramatic, even chaotic scene. And perhaps also with an element of farce. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon says of this scene, I always feel pleased at the idea of the dust and the debris of the roof coming down upon the heads of Pharisees and doctors of the law. It always delights me to think of those gentlemen that they would have dust on their heads for once. But the teachers of the law are in for an even greater affront than a bit of dust in their hair. Jesus doesn't, as everyone no doubt was expecting him to do, immediately heal the man. Instead, recognising his faith and, we must assume, his repentance, he pronounces, son, your sins are forgiven. I say we must assume his repentance because nowhere in the Bible is there any hint that God's forgiveness is given without repentance, though it is certainly offered before we repent. Now, a statement of the forgiveness of sins doesn't seem at all shocking to us. Mostly we're very familiar with the idea. And the teachers of the law also knew from their scriptures that God forgives sin when someone repents. But that's the problem for them. That's why they accused Jesus of blasphemy. They knew that only God can forgive sins. But they understood Jesus to be saying that he could forgive sins which meant Jesus was claiming to be God himself. Now, the teachers of the law were right on both counts. Only God can forgive sins, and Jesus was claiming to forgive sins. So they could conclude either that Jesus was terribly wrong or that he was, in fact, God. But they could not even consider that second possibility The idea that this itinerant Galilean peasant could actually be God was outrageous. Yet Jesus invites them to open their minds to this possibility. Okay, he says, what would it take to convince you that I do have the authority to forgive sins? In other words, that I am God. I agree, it's comparatively easy to say, to say, your sins are forgiven, because no one can see whether that's happened or not. But what if you could see evidence of it? What if I healed this man and he got up and walked out of here? The teachers of the law don't answer his question. But Jesus goes ahead and does just that. And this is not just a case of Jesus performing a miracle to impress them. You see, at that time, Jewish people were closely associated sin with sickness and disability. We see this in the question that Jesus' own disciples asked him when they met a blind man. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Note, Jesus doesn't go along with this idea that sickness and disability are always caused by some individual's sin. But he knew that for the teachers of the law, the healing of the man's disability would be concrete evidence that his sins had been forgiven. 
It was evidence that Jesus had the authority to forgive sins. But what of the teachers of the law? Even when they see the man get up, take his mat and go home, do they believe? No. Their preconceived ideas mean they simply cannot accept even the evidence of their own eyes. Jesus can't be God because he doesn't fit their idea of God. End of story. The second story of healing of the man with the paralysed hand, also called a withered or shriveled hand, is at the start of chapter 3. It also involves the Jewish religious authorities being outraged. This time their hostility is clear even before Jesus heals the man. They're looking for a reason to accuse him. And they think they'll get one because they suspect that he's going to heal someone on the Sabbath. But again, Jesus gives them an opportunity to change their mind, to be open to the possibility that he is who he says he is. And again, he tries to lead them into a new way of thinking with a question. Which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? And again, they can't or won't answer the question. Are they going to say it's lawful to do evil or to kill? I can't say that, but neither can they bring themselves to say that it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath because that might involve breaking one of the many rules that they had created as to what you could and couldn't do in order to obey the biblical command to rest on the Sabbath. So they're silent. Now this story is also in both Matthew's and Luke's Gospels. But only Mark tells us that Jesus was angry and deeply disturbed at their stubborn hearts. So he says to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and it was completely healed. For this action of compassion and healing, Jesus is condemned by the Pharisees. He has violated their rules he doesn't fit their preconceived ideas of a godly person. They see him as a major threat to their own authority. He has to go. Now, let's look at the other pair of stories in this chiasm. They might at first sight seem unrelated. Eating with tax collectors and sinners and harvesting grain on the Sabbath. But these stories are both about a controversy. This time, it's the religious authorities asking the questions. Jesus and his disciples do something which outrages them, and their question is really an accusation. Why are you doing this? And Jesus gives them an answer. In the first story, Jesus was eating at the house of Levi, a tax collector, later known as Matthew, one of Jesus' 12 disciples. It is extraordinary that Jesus would call as one of his 12 closest friends a man who would have been despised by almost everyone else. These days, quite respectable people could work for the tax office. 
You might even know somebody. But in those days, tax collectors were held in contempt as collaborators with the Romans. And because in order to make a profit, they had to collect more than the actual tax owed, which is a recipe for corruption and extortion. Tax collectors were social outcasts. So it's natural that when Jesus calls, Jesus' new friend Levi invites his friends to dinner to meet Jesus, most of Levi's friends are social outcasts too, whether they're tax collectors or prostitutes or other sinners. Of course, the Pharisees are disgusted. They ask him effectively, how can you bear to hang out with these disgraceful people? But Jesus points out, that's like asking a doctor or a nurse, why do you hang out with sick people? Of course Jesus will be with the people who know that they need him. The irony is that the Pharisees need Jesus' forgiveness as much as any sinner. They just don't know it, or they refuse to recognise it. The corresponding story, beginning at verse 23, is also just a short story. Jesus and his disciples were walking through some grain fields when his disciples began to pick the heads of grain to eat because they were hungry. But it was the Sabbath. And the Pharisees, who must have been following them around, looking for something to criticise Jesus for, are quick to ask him why they were doing something that was against their rules about the Sabbath. Jesus defends his disciples by appealing to their very own scriptures. An exception can be made to a regulation when there is a need. Jesus is actually saying something very profound here about God's commands, that they are designed for human flourishing and freedom, not to be a burden or to make things difficult for people. And as God himself, Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. As divine lawgiver, he has the authority to determine how Sabbath should be kept, not the Pharisees. So now we come to the middle section of our passage, the central idea, which is the key to the whole passage, verses 18 to 22. It begins with another story of people questioning the behaviour of Jesus and his disciples. They weren't joining in a fast that others were observing. Instead, they were feasting at Levi's house. Now, fasting was a regular part of Jewish life at that time. The Pharisees saw it as absolutely necessary in order to gain favour with God, and they fasted twice a week. It's not that Jesus was against fasting in itself. As such, before he began his ministry, he had prepared by 40 days of fasting and prayer in the wilderness. But now, his answer to their question, why aren't you fasting? is an extraordinary answer. Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast in that day. Of course it's not appropriate to fast at a wedding banquet. It's a feast. But why does Jesus identify himself as a bridegroom? 
In many places in the Old Testament, the relationship between God and his people Israel is described with a metaphor of marriage. God is the husband and Israel his wife. But Israel is unfaithful. The marriage ends in separation. By identifying himself as the bridegroom, Jesus is saying that he is God and that the relationship between God and his people is going to be renewed and the new relationship will be radically new. And so he goes on to say, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Jesus is saying that the old and the new are incompatible. If you try to mend an old garment with a piece of new cloth that has not yet shrunk, you'll only damage the garment further. And new wine should not be poured into old wineskins that are no longer flexible. As the new wine ferments, the gases produced will crack the rigid old wineskins, ruining both the wine and the skins. The old garments, the old wineskins, represent the traditions of the Jewish authorities, the sacrificial system and all their rules and regulations must be replaced by the new way of the gospel that Jesus brings. So we see that our passage this morning is about the conflict between the old and the new. The old ways of tradition and the new way of the gospel. No wonder the Pharisees wanted to kill Jesus. They saw only too well that Jesus' gospel was a real threat to their way of doing things. And they were so entrenched in their old way of thinking, they couldn't even consider a new and different way. They couldn't recognise who Jesus was, even when he was standing in front of them, inviting them to see the truth. But we shouldn't be too smug in condemning the Pharisees. They were not especially evil. They were human, like us. We're all prone, are we not, to prefer our way of doing things, to resist change, to close our minds to new ideas, to let our preconceived ideas blind us to the truth, to resent and exclude people who think and do things differently to us to turn the gospel into a series of prescriptions for correct ideas and behaviour. As Deb Hirsch said, when we reduce Christianity to a negative system where fasting becomes more sacred than feasting, law wins out over grace and correct theology becomes more important than divine encounter, we, in effect, become the modern-day Pharisees. Let's pray. A loving Heavenly Father, open our eyes to see what is really important. Open our ears to hear your voice. 
open our minds to receive your truth, even when it's unfamiliar and uncomfortable. Open our hearts to welcome all, even outcasts. Open our hands to share your blessings with others. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.